Hey y'all, so we're back with part two of my full-on epic sliders review, and oh my god, I have to say at this point that this was a review that I have wanted to do for a long time. Just looking at the different episodes, looking at the actors, the backstory, uh, some of the intricacies on this whole episodic serial nonsense that they uh, found themselves in by, um, by season four. So by episode five, you have World Killer which is a surprisingly good episode. It actually plays with the concept very well, and I suspect that it was a script that they had somewhere on the back burner. Uh, just not quite sure where to fit it in, and finally they found um, a season where they could just film that and put it in, because it's very much an isolated episode. It works well with the three character dynamic that they have, the three protagonist dynamic, rather. Um, so it genuinely works pretty well as an episode. In this episode, they go to an, uh, an abandoned world. Not the first, of course, um, where there's just nobody around, but there's all the buildings and vehicles and whatnot. And it turns out that the Quinn of this world when he was developing the sliding technology, had accidentally sent everyone else in the world to a parallel Earth. Yeah, so suddenly, everyone but Quinn, and presumably, you know, there, there would have been several people who wouldn't have had doubles, but, um, but basically the population of the Earth doubled in an instant, and there weren't enough resources to go around. You had too many mouths to feed, not enough water to drink, not enough fuel to heat and light homes. And so um, they find Quinn basically living as a drifter still in his family home, but they but he's uh, he has long hair, which is just an excuse to put Jerry O'Connell in a bad wig with a hat over it so that he can kind of look like, uh, oh, the old bum character that the that guy with the glasses crew used to do. That was always so tasteless. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, so in this one, they end up being able, using the, the regular sliding technology that Arquin figured out, uh, to travel to the other world where they sent everyone, and then using the same energy wavelength or whatever to quickly send everyone who was sent there back to their point of origin. Now, some of the questions are, since this has been over the course of a few years, um, there would have been children born to couples who married. Maybe one person died and was widowed and uh, suddenly their spouse was back alive. So what happens to that kid? Well, Probably they get left in oblivion, unfortunately. Or, since a lot of the matter would come from the mother's uh, body, and only the uh, one strand of DNA, or, or one strand of RNA, uh, would uh, be part of that child, but that material would have been basically native to that new world, those children probably would stay either with the mother especially if it was still in utero. 
But since your body replaces essentially every atom of itself within um, a matter of years, it's very possible that it wouldn't be quite so simple. And basically, the majority of your of your person would um, would you know go one place or the other. So so it's really debatable as to exactly how this works. But it's this the whole premise of this show is science as magic, because if you travel to another dimension there's no reason why that dimension would have to have exactly the same three dimensions that we use let alone have time flowing in a normal direction which was actually the plot of an earlier episode that i didn't discuss it's appropriate that we go back and uh, stop and look at that episode for a minute because it's actually a really good use of the concept in the episode as time goes by and for some reason i wasn't remembering that part of the of the dang uh, uh, episode, the the details on the episode are really not listed in uh, in the description, and it's unfortunate because they they do a really good job in terms of the writing of interpreting what it would be like for a world to be going backwards. So once again, we're borrowing a page from Red Dwarf, where they travel to a world where time's going backwards, just like in. Uh, the uh, episode of Red Dwarf called Backwards. So uh, with this particular one, they actually have to solve a murder mystery, and they're actually able to um, prevent it from happening. But uh, it's, it's, it's a whole uh, kind of convoluted thing, because then that would unravel the series of events that they were just in, which is why it's so problematic for time to go backwards unless you simply weren't aware of it. Anyway, it was a good use of the series concept that the universes that they go to would not necessarily have everything working exactly the same. So by having the, um, the dimensions not necessarily acting exactly the same as in everyone else, uh, th that actually made uh, a fair amount of sense and was a lot of fun because it played with the concept. It let the writers kind of flex themselves a little bit. But for that, you have to go all the way back to season two. Jumping back into season four, uh, with World Killer, you have a couple of parts played by twins. Um, you have uh, some interesting ideas as to how the world would work suddenly if the population was doubled, where uh, governments would collapse, uh, because you might have like two senators um, or or, uh, or two representatives for the same district, uh, two presidents and so on, um, who could be either the same person or could be very different people. So basically everything uh, switched to warlords, <laughs> which is like, okay. Um, and basically the parts that they need to repair and replace things on uh, their device are strictly controlled, just like all the resources, by one of these local warlords. So that's where your intrigue runs in for the episode. You also have a lot of emotional conflict with um, the Quinn Mallory of the first world that they traveled to. And for some reason there isn't a Quinn Mallory of the world that they travel from that world to, the, the one with double the population where that would have actually been very interesting if you'd suddenly had three Quinn Mallory's all over the place doing different things. And somehow that third Quinn Mallory 
was able to help things even more. Like maybe this one was a serious, uptight, nerdy one or something. I don't know. Uh, so, Season 4, Episode 6, uh, calls back to Episode 1, where um, it was revealed that Arquin Mallory didn't actually come from the Earth that we thought he did. He actually came from another Earth where his parents had already developed sliding technology, and he because they're, they're back on their Earth with the Chromags and everything. And he discovers through a secret hidden microchip that uh, his mother had for him and hid all these years. You know, so it's 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 a serious MacGuffin that tries to uh, that tries to play things up a little differently. Part of the reason why they lose actors over time is that, especially with lead actors, it gets, it gets more and more expensive to negotiate the contracts. So over the course of uh, the third or fourth season, especially with a lead actor, you're going to see actors like that where it's harder and harder to get them to come back. Um, they're going to need more uh, more speaking time per episode. They're going to need more uh, more of the story to be about themselves. So this was where Jerry O'Connell became producer. Uh, I think around season two or three, he became an executive producer. And he had made enough money from this show and uh, some of his other stuff like Stand By Me where he was able to start being an executive producer on the show and start making some of the creative decisions. And it's really unfortunate that Wade was left as kind of a side note or an afterthought after she had been a really good character and had had some interesting chances to shine uh, through much of the series. And she was actually one of my favorite characters. Um, in fact, Quinn Mallory, despite being the main protagonist, was actually the most boring character because everything with him was always science, 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 I figured it out. And he was always uh, kind of um, the Lothario character, whereas that would have actually been an interesting arc for um, Rembrandt if he had been the Lothario. Because, I mean, he's a musician musicians sometimes get around sometimes they you know they're used to traveling and touring and whatnot and he wouldn't feel that bad necessarily about you know loving someone and leaving them you know the next day so i mean it, it would have been better if they had just developed that that particular story but the microchip that quinn's uh supposed mother gave to him revealed that uh, his real parents had um, hidden him and his younger brother uh, on other alternate Earths where they figured that they would be safe from the Chromags because they discovered the Chromags as well. So episode six, we finally, which, which is only, mind you, about a third into the series, but by this time we've had a few episodes to kind of forget about it. Uh, he he finally finds his brother and I think at this point season 4 was on the sci-fi channel. I think Fox had cancelled Sliders after season 3 and they were able to emigrate over to uh, the sci-fi channel which uh, did use a lot of uh, universal um, properties at the time like uh, oh uh, I, I want to say like uh, I, I think Stargate is a, is a universal property if I, no it's MGM 
Uh, anyway. But sci-fi was kind of part of a, a, a couple of different networks that um, used a few different uh, developed properties and a few different studios to develop some uh, interesting sci-fi shows uh, that they enjoyed a lot of popularity for. This is just before you saw the rise of a lot of the really stupid stuff like Sharknado and everything kind of taking over or some of the reality shows that really took over the network. So episode six is called Oh Brother Where Art Thou? And I was so tempted to write a version of Man of Constant Sorrow to be about sliders. You have no idea. I was all set to like, you know, record a couple of lyrics, uh, you know, like for four long years, I've been a slider. No place to my home earth I've found or whatever. I don't know, but. Yes, yes, I, I sing. Okay. Anyway, uh, but Ober There Art Thou, basically, you only spend a little bit of time on the primitive Amish earth that they're on, uh, which is okay. You know, the, the whole point is that he's kind of the da Vinci of their earth, uh, of that earth. And then they travel to a more modern day earth, but they've replaced uh, money with either a DNA scan or a bone graft of some kind in order to prevent fraud. Uh, well, this lands uh, the brother, Colin, in a big heap of trouble because anyone who doesn't have that is not automatically scanned and identified by the systems that they use. And as a result, he can go in basically stealth to places that would otherwise be problematic. Right? Okay. So that's what we're looking at with all of this. It, it's, it, it's a question of, of, of that particular element. Uh, so he gets used by some doubles of people that he was fond of back on his old Earth. The Earth he, he lived in and, and grew up on. And so it's kind of a fish-out-of-water story, uh, a chance for him to kind of learn more about what life is like. And it's an interesting story in itself to introduce the character. It gives him a chance to kind of be on his own, show uh, what he's like as a person. And uh, then the other sliders have to go and try and rescue him. So a, a pretty interesting and compelling story. And I think, again, they were looking at where to place it in the season. Like, do you place it right after? No, because you've got some episodes where it's just the three of them without Wade, and they have to kind of get used to working just with each other. Virtual Slide is uh, a perfect example where the characters get a chance to kind of um, sort of spread themselves a little bit without as much of the constraints. The, just the three actors uh, playing opposite each other in different scenes uh, ends up being a very uh, decent way to play it. And then by contrast, you've got World Killer, which has uh, like a dozen extras around them at several points for much of the episode. So it's an interesting challenge when you get to the writing there. Uh, by contrast, Oh Brother War, that was more about introducing uh, the younger brother, Colin. Uh, and I, I did notice that the characters' names are 
Quinn and Colin, a.k.a. Colin Quinn, like the Saturday Night Live comedian at the time. Yeah, they went there. Okay, so episode seven is Just Say Yes. And I remember this episode in particular because I had such an issue with it. I really did. Um, the idea is that they land on a world where basically the 1950s, 1960s attitude towards psychopharmacology never stopped. You never developed an issue with illegal drugs as much because the over-the-counter drugs that were incredibly strong and like messed with your mind a lot, um, you know, like legal speed and that kind of thing, uh, the uh, the mommy's little helpers kind of kind of drugs uh, that you saw heavy use of in the 50s and 60s. Those basically just became the norm, where drug use became compulsory in order to basically control society. Government endorsed it as a as a means of controlling the population from doing a lot of things that it didn't like. So it controls like aggression by keeping you on drugs. And mind you, in my personal life, I was put on an anti-ADD medication. I didn't have ADD. I don't have ADD. But they had misdiagnosed me when I entered school back before kindergarten or something. And so they misdiagnosed me as having that. And in about fourth grade, so this is only a few years later, they decided to put me on this at school. They were suggesting it. They were pushing it with my parents because they thought, oh, well, you'll be able to go to normal classes instead of being in uh, special education, which I really shouldn't have been in anyway because I was just on the autism spectrum. It wasn't like I really needed that much help. But they were giving me like remedial lessons and everything, even though I was scoring through the roof on everything. Anyway, so by the time this show came along, I had been so scared off of psychopharmacology for managing any kind of issues. Um, the medication that they had put me on had basically made me bipolar. I was crying a lot. It was really awful. I talk about it from time to time. So this one was problematic for me because they were giving them extremely intense drugs that, you know, they weren't happy or sad. They were just numb, but they felt content because they weren't sad. And honestly, that sounds more like SSRIs. And I can understand that if maybe one or more of the writers or maybe the writer's kids had been put on these kinds of medications, they might be, or, or because there was a big push to get on things like Zoloft and things at the time, you could understand why they might say, oh, well, this is not a good situation to constantly have all these medications pushed on people for uh, their conditions. In my particular case, I suffered so much harassment and abuse from childhood onward that by the time I was an adult, I really did need um, not an SSRI because that stuff is just awful, uh, but something like Buspirone where it really just helps control the unwanted thoughts. It helps control, it, it helps give, and, and by control, I mean it gives you control over it. 
not just numbing things. SSRIs are horrible in terms of antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications because they just numb you completely. They completely kill your libido. They block all pleasure receptors so that you're just there. You're just a zombie. It's really awful. Um, and in this world, uh, uh, Quinn Mallory is a uh, rebel who has been like expelled to Canada because he's against heavy drug use, and he's like, people should try to live clean. You should, you should, you should uh, try to not go on this stuff. And the entitled, uh, the entire title of "Just Say Yes" is a reference, of course, to uh, Nancy Reagan with her slogan "Just Say No." Um, although it doesn't quite make sense in the context. They really should have called it Just Say No because it would have made sense. But as it is, should everyone be on Buspar? No. And not everyone should be on Buspirone or Buspar. Um, I, both, both are names for the same drug. Uh, in my particular case, I did need to be on it. And I sought it out because it uh, would help me with a lot of issues, and it has. That's great. People need to understand that uh, some instances, taking a pill does help. And it was after I had a lot of abuse around uh, 2014 through 2016 that I finally sought it out and just got a prescription for it and tried it out, and I loved what it did. And it has made my life so much better, so much richer. Now, by contrast, what they're showing in the episode is a much more intense drug. And they're showing how, uh, like, drug researchers and executives are, like, just going from one drug to another. When one drug stops working, they just go on something stronger, and then they go on something stronger. Um, for me, with my buspirone, I often find that I can go off it very easily, and then I don't get too acclimated to a particular dosage because some of it is also a vitamin deficiency, which is just as easy to treat and a lot less habit-forming. Vitamins are just something you get in food that everyone needs to live. You know, I've got a little iron deficiency. i got a little vitamin D deficiency. These are normal, natural things to have, and it's okay to take a supplement for them and if you go without them, you aren't necessarily going to feel any worse. So a lot of my medical care in those instances is all about trying to, to take the best possible care of myself without forming a serious habit. Especially when I was in the hospital um, and I was like, you know, I can't... I, you know, I can't take melatonin to sleep. I'm having trouble sleeping, but I can't take melatonin because it makes me have weird dreams. Um, you know, I can use either valerian root or an over-the-counter sleeping medication. Just one or two of those will probably do. And they have to avoid any kind of drug-seeking behavior, and they were like, we don't have any, um, any over-the-counter sleeping medication, and we don't have any valerian root. I'm like, well, you ought to consider getting valerian root or some sleep medication. I don't want, like, you know, tons of it. I just want some because I have trouble sleeping in strange places. 
Well, anyway. So Just Say Yes is a problematic episode because what they show Maggie and Colin doing is largely just existing and not feeling satisfied by baking and crafting and other things that are just sort of pastimes to help occupy themselves. And they show just how vapid and empty a life it is when you aren't actually going out and experiencing the world and doing things. You're just sitting at home doing arts and crafts and cooking and things like that and how you're just existing. Well, yes, but also that doesn't necessarily mean that your life is empty. I mean, a lot of it is actually ableist when you get down to it, because some people have disabilities that actually prevent them from going out and doing a lot of things. And it's not just as simple as, oh, just get out and you'll get used to it. Some people genuinely have serious issues that prevent them from being able to go out to, like, bars and clubs and whatnot, because it is not a sensory-friendly world. And in order to go out into that world, they have to take a medication in order to cope with your ableism. So, although Just Say Yes is an okay episode, they talk a little bit about how Sigmund Freud was kind of the godfather of psychopharmacology, and he promoted a lot of this. It's also important to note that a lot of psychopharmacology also comes from herbal medicine that was long established by women back in the medieval period. Um, now, mind you, herbal medicine does not always work, so I don't always promote that as a good thing. Valerian root, I find, works very gently compared to sleeping pills or melatonin. It doesn't just knock you out or something, and it doesn't give you weird dreams. So, that said, watching Just Say Yes is a bit of a um, is a bit of an anti-drug PSA that also talks about how prescription drugs are somehow bad. And it's like, well, yeah, they're bad until you need them. They're bad until it's literally the only way to help with your problem. I literally had so many things undiagnosed. So I don't, I've, I've talked long enough about that particular episode, but it's very problematic. Uh, episode eight is the alternate Ville horror. So yeah, at this point, it's a ghost story. They've got to hide in a hotel because uh, by this time they established that uh, the Sliders preferred to stay at a particular hotel that was shared in every universe called The Chandler. And uh, in this one, The Chandler is haunted. So they, uh, yeah, they, they just, they, they hide out there because there is a burning acid rain over this world, which would actually affect the structures pretty badly. But okay, we'll just go with it. Um, and anyway, they, they find that there's ghosts, and honestly, I fell asleep. I know, it's awful. I fell right to sleep because the episode was so dull. Apparently what happens is they eventually become ghosts floating in between parallel worlds, and so it's kind of like what happened to Quinn earlier, but... It was such a dull episode that I really wasn't that interested. Uh, the dynamic just wasn't there. Pretty much any time you have an episode where they're really just stuck on one set for the entire time, you're going to have a pretty dull episode because they can't really go to as many places and it's entirely reliant on the story and the characters interacting in it in order to resolve it. And 
it's also kind of a weak story because almost any time Sliders involves a supernatural element, you're going to be disappointed. Just expect disappointment. If it's if it's involving like the episode where Quinn was essentially a ghost, disappointment. The episode with the poisonous fog where there's like a psychic, disappointment. Um, now, I understand exactly why they did it because you film like outside for like a minute and then the rest of the episode you're just in the hotel set for the rest of the time which they've already built this hotel set for multiple episodes so it's perfectly fine they can reuse it over and over and over again and just dress it up a little bit different have a different cast um person for the role of the um uh, of the concierge or hotel manager or whatever so it made a certain amount of sense budget wise limited special effects for the ghost effects in one instance they literally just had the child actor on set with a spotlight on him and a lot of it was uh the jacob's ghost effect where um you know you just filmed the actor on a black background with a little bit of highlight on them from uh, a spotlight and then you just double expose that over uh, the video footage, which is really easy to do when you're doing this on video, which they were. Okay, so the next episode, Slide Cage, on the other hand, was the reason why they had to do this on the cheap for uh, the previous episode, simply because it was cheaper uh, to do an episode on one set. So if you cut costs there, you got more money for the next episode. And in this one, they built original purpose-built sets just for that episode. All like sci-fi sets and everything. Probably redresses of sets from movies that they had done or something. I can't be certain. But um, they also had to go big on the makeup and costume budget, mostly on the makeup. Uh, because they had several extras, many with non-speaking parts, but many of them were wearing makeup. In this world, they try to finally go home to uh, Quinn and Colin's homeworld. And they find that uh, their home planet, their home dimension, has set up what's called a slide cage. Which is essentially like a gateway uh, that just stops anyone from... Uh, getting to the actual dimension so like some kind of nearby dimension or uh, a planet that's in flux it's completely covered in toxic gases that humans can't breathe um, and so they're in a very large but enclosed habitat that can sustain them can provide them with food uh, air water everything but they can never leave. So it's essentially a prison. And there are people who have been there for 10 years or more. So it's another situation where the sliders are stuck in one place for the entire time. So they don't have to do any filming locations. They don't have to do, um, you know, which means that they don't have to rely on the weather and everything. But... Um, 
this allowed them to do a lot more with it, I think. Uh, that said, as I said, there were some purpose-built sets. There was a lot of makeup that they had to do for the Chromags who are trapped on this world. And basically, it's territorial stuff. Even though they've got plenty of room, they don't have plenty of resources. They have to scavenge to survive. And they've lost several people over the years. So this is like the, the dregs, the tag ends. Um, and basically they have to survive to get out of there and figure out how to redirect the slide cage so that instead of trapping people there, it'll just some, send them back where they came from. So basically people will do a U-turn. So that's an interesting idea, but um, does it work? Well, yes. It's a very high concept episode. It calls back to stuff that we uh, found out earlier in the season from episode one of season four and it does move the characters along a little bit further even though it's episodic and completely enclosed so it could be placed anywhere in the airing order unlike some of the episodes from season one uh it does work it's a solid episode and it introduces a relevant plot device that comes up later in the season so you do have some elements that come up later but this one slide cage actually works really well for developing the overall series without necessarily a lot of callbacks it calls back to episode one it calls back to a couple of other episodes and it also introduces um a chromag villain who's going to come back later in the season and I'll get to that when the episode comes up. Okay, so episode 10, season 4, called Asylum, is a really different episode from a lot of the other ones this season. It still takes place in the Cro-Mag arc, but it's just different enough from every other story in the Cro-Mag arc that it's kind of worth talking about. Um... In this particular episode, they come to a world that was raided for resources by the Cro-Mags uh, as part of the uh, Cro-Mag War that happened uh, some... I, I think they want to say it was like so many years, like I think it was like uh, 20 years or so before the story takes place. Um, now, one of the aspects to it is, of course, they don't know what the heck is going on, but in this reality... Uh, the Chromags basically depleted the world of coal, oil, all that stuff, because advanced uh, races would totally need coal and oil in order to fly their spaceships. Well, anyway, uh, so as a result, all of the vehicles are driven by horses, and California broke away to become a neutral state, and is apparently governed by Charlton Heston, of all people. And one of the things that they did was they basically took the Switzerland route where their banks are cash havens for the ultra-wealthy. Uh, so California, as a result, has a broad swath of different extras in different kinds of costumes. Uh, they have weird Mexican-Japanese fusion cuisine restaurants. Um, anyway, and apparently, as part of this whole uh, conflict... Margaret Thatcher uh, collaborated with the Cromags to 
let them have access to the oil of the North Sea in exchange for uh, the United Kingdom being left alone. Now, in the show, they call it Great Britain, but Great Britain is all of the British Isles, including Ireland. Uh, but the United Kingdom is the actual area of Northern Ireland, the Isle of Man, Wales, Scotland, um, England, the Isle of Wight, and so on. So, yeah, a little oversight because it's written by Americans. But anyway, so as a result, anyone who collaborated with the Cro-Mags when they invaded and raided everything for resources uh, is called a Thatcher because it was so notorious of just selling out everyone else for the sake of basically your own self-interests. Um, so what they, what they talk about is like how Montana just basically was destroyed. And it's like, I don't think Montana has that much, um, oil or coal for that matter. Now, Pennsylvania, uh, yeah, that's pretty well known. Uh, Texas, sure. But yeah, anyway, so, uh, California in this reality is, um, is kind of a libertarian paradise um, because everyone's carrying guns and, weirdly enough, no legalized marijuana. Isn't that weird? Uh, but, yeah. So, this is a Rembrandt episode. Um, basically, it seems like they were giving Jerry O'Connell kind of a break so that he could maybe film another episode that was a bit more focused on him uh, because he's in a coma for, you know, he's unconscious for, for the, like, the entire episode. Uh, there's a little bit of an emphasis on Maggie. Uh, there's very little emphasis on uh, Colin. So, yeah, I think that the O'Connell brothers were kind of maybe doing something else. I'm not sure exactly. Uh, but that's okay, because, uh, as I've said previously, Claymont Derricks was really awesome, and giving Kari Wurr a chance to kind of do her own thing is is good because it does change up the pace instead of focusing so much on the white men uh, all the time. Uh, anyway, so Rembrandt ends up falling for uh, the doctor at the uh, hospital that they end up at after an accident. Part of this episode's purpose at the start is asking an important question and answering it. If you are in a plane and you project a portal into the air and uh, you jump from that plane, would you then be able to guide yourself into the portal? Uh, they've, they've already explained that you can, in fact, jump into the portal if it's like down a cliff face and you'll go through the portal. It's very scary and dangerous, but it can be done. Um, and the portal always flings them out with a great amount of force. It's very rare that they uh, just land gently on their feet or something. Well, in this particular one, both Rembrandt and Quinn get blows to the head that cause some injury. But Quinn is in more severe state is in a more severe state where he might not make it. And uh, the doctor is able to treat Rembrandt, but they aren't so sure if she can help Quinn. Of course, 
Then it turns out while Rembrandt and she are on a romantic date at her place, this lovely beach house, uh, that she has a special technique she learned in the war that she's never tried on humans before, but might be able to help him. Anyway, so the ending is okay. The main focus of it is on Rembrandt Brown and helping him kind of shine a little bit. So I think in all it works as a story, uh, but I like that they actually go to a world with Cromag influence over it. You know, the Cromags left an impact there, but they did not, uh, you know, it's not a Cromag story. For that, you gotta go one episode earlier or so. Uh, but as it is, it's still pretty good. Okay, so Season 4, Episode 11 is California Reich. And this is an episode that I actually slept through because I was, like, leaving sliders on on nights when I couldn't really rest. And the episodes are only, like, 45 minutes long, so you're going to sleep through multiple episodes if you fall asleep with it on uh, while you're just binging it. Uh, this is why I generally don't like binge-watching shows, because I'll end up falling asleep and missing a bunch of stuff. I usually prefer to go on DVD, and that way I can more easily uh, pull it back up. But uh, streaming is relatively okay. Uh, the Peacock app does have its problems with <laughs> with this, because when the screensaver comes on, it makes it fritz out and stop working. Anyway, so California Reich is the Nazi episode, for lack of a better word. Just like Star Trek had a Nazi episode, and um, and loads of other sci-fi shows have had a Nazi episode. This one, they land on an Earth that never had, um, never had a Hitler. They didn't have World War II. And given my knowledge of German history and world history, it's really hard to believe that. I mean, were the Allies merciful? Uh, you know, what exactly happened? Uh, that made it so that there was never uh, a rise of a fascist regime in Germany, let alone in Italy and Japan, because those all happened relatively independent of one another. Fascism rose as part of a counter-movement against the rise of democracies. And it was proposed that uh, this sort of rule would be... Um, just as good, if not a better way forward. It, it generally was thought of as a better way than uh, the weaker republics like the Weimar Republic or certain others that had infinite squabbling and never led to anything. So uh, in this particular instance, um, they're looking at what would happen in the 90s if um, the Holocaust had never sort of shocked people out of their racism. So basically, uh, they're talking about a lot of stuff that we actually hear about today, America for Americans and crap like that, where what they mean by Americans is white people. And as we all know, American does not necessarily mean white people, but for racists it sure does. Anyway, it's... A pretty powerful episode in terms of its messaging. It ends up feeling an awful lot like a rejected script from The Outer Limits because it was a bit ham-handed in its message. Uh, but basically, Rembrandt ends up getting snatched up and sent to a concentration camp. 
and they actually do blood purity tests and all that other crap uh, to try and prove that you're purely white. And it's like, nobody in this country is purely white. That doesn't happen. Not in the United States. If you are at all purebred white, you're also probably kind of trashy. Like, you could be purebred white and have, like, all the money in the world, and I'm still probably going to think that you're a bit trash because you have no diversity in your blood. It's, it's kind of like if you look at dogs, the smartest ones are mutts. I'm not even kidding. And it's kind of similar with humans. You need that diversity in your, in your genetic makeup in order to make yourself a more versatile human. So, you know, that's just my little soapbox for a minute as to why racism and racial purity as a concept are stupid. So, okay, California Reich. Um, Rembrandt gets snatched up, sent to this uh, labor camp where the people who get quote-unquote deported are actually being turned into a sort of... Um, lobotomized, modified human that basically functions as slave labor, uh, called an eddy. And, um, yeah, they basically get a frontal lobotomy, they get their faces altered to be replaced by uh, a sort of um, silvery plastic with no mouth. Uh, so, yeah, real nightmare fuel there. And, you know, they just... I say frontal lobotomy because I'm pretty sure that's what they were implying. They show, like, a scar right on the temple as if you were to directly go in through keyhole surgery and actually remove a portion of the frontal lobe. Um, whenever they've done certain operations like that on people, it tends to um, cause a very traumatic problem to the mind where they essentially become, like, just an empty shell, a husk. And that's kind of how the Eddies behave. Uh, they have a very beautiful woman on the cast as a character named Vanessa, who is the, um, who's the concierge at the Chandler Hotel, where the sliders keep uh, going. And uh, they, they wind up in this place, and it's made very plain that anyone who's a person of color is going to be beaten, rounded up, and taken in for a bounty. Uh, they they show you this right away before we even have the sliders come in. Um, and Vanessa's child, they, they don't show any other family, they just show Vanessa's uh, teenage son falling in, uh, he falls in with one of these gangs that goes rounding up uh, what they call uh, migrants or immigrants. And uh, Basically, they just label anyone who's a person of color as, as uh, you know, an immigrant. But there's a little bit of a problem with that when you label black people as immigrants or migrants. Because, uh, yeah, they didn't exactly come here by choice back in the day. That's kind of how that works. Now, one aspect to it is that uh, they... They, they don't pull any punches about this. The Eddies are absolutely slave labor. It's totally a final solution type thing that the governor who's, uh, of California who's planning on running for uh, president in this story uh, is doing as an economic recovery to end the recession. 
and uh, he's basically doing slave labor. Now, the only the only uh, plot hole with that is that the United States already has a loophole for prison labor that allows for prisoners to essentially be used as slave labor. Um, and, I mean, it, it exists right now. It's one of the reasons why we have such a large prison population is it fuels the economy by having slave labor, for lack of a, of a better word. It, it is forced labor. Um, you have no choice in it. You will do this work, and that's it. So it's, yeah, it, it's one of those things about America that we don't really like to deal with, but it is one of the loopholes to the Emancipation Proclamation and the act of Congress that ratified it. Yeah, I mean, really. And it was one of the ways that a lot of the former slave states were able to get away with it. If you've seen the film Life with Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence, you know all about it. Uh, if you've seen um, any movie about uh, prison like uh, Brubaker, you know all about it. It's a very common thing. So, given all that, just looking at what the situation is in this story, America has already gone down that route. But, because there's a beautiful white woman involved, I mean, she's passing for white, um, but apparently she's not entirely pure, whatever that means. Uh, because of that, when she gets injured during a bar fight, when she tries to stop her son from swinging a chair at Quinn, she gets injured, goes to the hospital, they check her blood, and find out that she's not pure, which means they send her off to this prison camp where they then begin converting her into an eddy. She's only partially converted when they rescue Rembrandt and her, and this leads to the shocking climax and whatnot where um, it was already established at the start of the episode that the governor, a man named Schick, um, which just makes me think of the razor. <laughs> anyway, uh, he, uh, he is holding a rally. It's very sparsely attended, considering it's a presidential rally, but whatever, or a presidential uh, campaign rally. Uh, that's really more a problem of the production crew not being able to book enough extras for it, and then doing a crane shot that showed how sparsely populated it was instead of doing an eye-level shot that would have actually shown the crowd. They also were clearly running a little bit short on time because they ended up using a cut to um, an American flag on a wall that they had used earlier in the episode at the very start. And it's just there and then gone. So, I don't know. Um, I, I think that they just wanted to pad it a little bit and have a little bit of an in-betweener scene kind of establishing before they, they cut to things, because filming's expensive, you only got so much time, you can only do so many um, shots in the uh, second unit footage, and that was one that they could just splice right in there to pad it out. So, they interrupt uh, his uh, speech to get Vanessa on the Jumbotron, and then uh, in only a few seconds after they do that, like a minute or two, 
they um, they slide to another world and they're asked by a black doctor, uh, what's going on here? And uh, he's like, look, do you have a good life here? You know, you're a doctor. Is everything okay here, you know, on this world? And he's like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> and during this that section, I was like being such a smart aleck. I was like, well, there's the horrible disease out, you know, that's ran, you know, ruining the country. There's uh, the sun's about to explode. There's the monsters that are actually right outside the building here. <laughs> I really wanted to have it be like they go away, and then it turns out like that the the doctor is is like you know a monster or something and and eats them. But you know that that's just my sick sense of humor. Uh, but they do get Vanessa to a hospital along with uh, her kid Kirk, and they're, you know, then they have to slide away inside of a couple of minutes, and that that's the end of the episode. So California Reich is one of the message episodes that kind of lays it on really thick, but at the same time, it's basic enough. It explores a lot of the concepts. It talks about a lot of the human experience of what it's like to go through a forced labor camp, go through a fascist regime that rounds up people based on their race or what have you. The whole purity blood thing being just how bizarre it, re it really is. Um, you know, so it, it's worth checking out, especially if you want to have a discussion with your child about the topic of race. Um, it's an interesting little nugget of an episode that wasn't going to win them a Humanitas anytime soon. Uh, humanitas. Uh, but it, it was at least an enjoyable enough episode that did kind of show just how pathetic fascists and Nazis really are. They are massive losers, and anyone who supports them is uh, just full-on Dummkopf. Okay, so speaking of uh, all kinds of wild settings, the next three episodes are actually some of the wildest that I think you're going to get on season four of Sliders, because it really does go over the gamut and try to have some message episodes, some commentary episodes. So let's talk about episode 12, The Dying Fields. Now, in this one, uh, humans are basically branded with tattoos and hunted for sport by Chromags and Chromag human hybrids. And it's basically uh, a way of them just like sharpening their skills. And, and it's another way in which we see that the Chromags very much are another iteration of racial fascism and uh, racial nationalism and, and all kinds of stuff that's really bad. Uh, Rembrandt ends up getting poisoned by uh, a plant and ends up having to be cured uh, by a Chromag. It, in, in the summary, it just says uh, an enemy. Uh, but this is another episode where I just tuned out and wasn't really awake for it. Um, but it's generally kind of a, a another turn of of a totally different setting from where they were previously. It's not a city, it's a rural area, it's pastoral, and it seems really peaceful looking, and then suddenly it's all um, kill or be killed. It's, it's um, you know, death for breakfast and vengeance for lunch. 
Um, and don't even ask me what they have for afternoon tea because I can't think that quick. Uh, but it's an interesting idea because um, throughout much of season four at this point, Rembrandt has had an arc where he cannot trust the Cro-Mags. Uh, they have done so much to him to hurt him that it's impossible for him to not feel horrible just towards them. He, he has this, this bitter hatred. And on top of that, because they have um, these telepathic, telepathic abilities that allow them to manipulate human minds, they actually programmed him. They showed this uh, a little bit in uh, the uh, Slidegate episode uh, that he uh, that a, that a Chromag officer could actually program him to do something that normally he wouldn't, including kill his own friends. So it's genuinely um, a powerful episode in terms of its themes. It shows a lot that you haven't seen in in the other episodes and. Uh, and almost any episode where you have Rembrandt Brown as the focus is going to be powerful. It's going to have some, um, some gravitas. So next uh, for episode 13 is Lipschitz Live. And this one basically is, you know, making a whole thing about how talk shows and, um, and uh, these kind of uh, commentators like oh, Rush Limbaugh and G. Gordon Liddy back in the day were kind of having a lot more importance in society than they probably should have. So in this one, Colin's double is actually super wealthy, and so he gets invited on the show, and the show itself is like supposed to be very outrageous and um, over the top. But I don't know. It, it, it's 90s... Um, prime time over the top so it's only like going to be so uh, outrageous as it goes but as it is you know it's also kind of making fun of Jerry Springer it's making fun of, of a lot of these um, shows that were kind of dominating the airwaves at the time and part of the, the matter here is that uh, a lot of these shows can influence how you see the world you know if you listen to a lot of true crime stuff uh, you might think that there's murderous and rapists everywhere, um, and you know it, it can it can be this uh, this influence, uh, especially if you're easily susceptible to the point where you don't actually engage with other people very often. So if you're isolated and you're only listening to like true crime podcasts, you might see only true crime everywhere. Uh, so this particular one is just kind of. Uh, spoofing all of that and uh, offering some commentary on it, basically saying, don't watch TV so much. Figure out your life and uh, move ahead a little bit into the real world. Interact with others. Which is one of the main messages of Sliders, is basically don't shut yourself off, don't isolate, don't close off from the world, and don't just do what you think is right in order to, you know, and, and say to hell with everyone else. Episode 14 of Season 4 of Sliders is called Mother and Child, and it actually takes a look at something that was established at the start of the season, which is the breeding camps that have the half Cro-Mag, half human babies. So this is one of the places where Wade was taken, officially, in canon. Um, 
And unfortunately, they don't find Wade, which would have actually been great. You know, even if they learned some kind of fate for her, it would have actually been satisfying. But instead, uh, the Sliders, you know, they hide out in a cave uh, trying to, you know, stay away from the Cromags. And they find a woman who has a half Cromag baby and eventually figure out that that child cannot survive on Earth. Now, I don't know the specifics of it because this was another one that I just kind of, you know, was not paying attention while binge watching. Uh, so, unfortunately, uh, that one I missed. But it's interesting that they are taking the time and steps to develop the different aspects of ways in which the Cromags have influenced the outside world, the other dimensions that they have conquered. Between the Earth... Um, where California became an independent state and um, most of the resources were pillaged by the Cromags uh, over the course of like a year or two. Um, and like Margaret Thatcher betrayed the rest of the world in exchange for having Great Britain spared, which I don't know. Maybe they just, maybe, maybe she negotiated with Ireland. Maybe Ireland never separated from the UK. I, I can't say. It's an alternate history. But as it is, this particular episode explores another side of the Cromags that was established at the start of the season. And it's challenging because you've got this really, really dark side that does come directly from the pages of history. Um, the Nazis did have rape camps. They did take uh, lesbian women specifically and basically, you know, force them to give birth. This this was one of the early things that they figured out. But the women, just after being raped so many times by, like, the preferred German soldiers who were, like, you know, supposed to be the best, I'm not even sure that the, that the German soldiers necessarily would have been okay with it. Like, they were probably sold on the idea that, oh, this is about breeding the master race and blah, 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 all this kind of garbage. I'm not even sure why Cromags would bother having half-breeds, because if they're so against having humans existing, why would they do that? I don't know. Um, it, it just doesn't seem like a, like a solidly thought-out aspect. But... Basically, the Cromags are Nazis in Sliders, so that's what it's really all about. They're just kind of telling that story. So, episode 15 is called Net Worth, and in this episode, the Sliders land in a world divided into internet users and those who despise the technology. Basically, Luddites. And this one can feel a little bit like... Um, like kind of a, um, a tough episode where the internet was still a new concept for people and it wasn't developed in the way that we have it these days, if you follow. Because uh, these days we have social media, we have all these, um, we have YouTube, we have uh, every, every other facet of the internet that you know about. Uh, but basically, uh, the synopsis on IMDb says, Virtual reality takes on new meaning when the sliders are split up on a world addicted to an internet ad 
addicted to an internet-addicted world, and get caught up in a dangerous romance between an online girl and an offliner. So basically, they have a star-crossed romance. Um, and those who are offline, I did manage to watch this one uh, <laughs> because it woke me up. And um, basically, the ones who are online just live online all the time in a virtual reality state. This is another virtual reality episode. And um, the people who are offline basically live in like a Mad Max gang run kind of world. So it's not an especially original idea. Basically, the, the Internet users live in an ivory tower kind of situation, and it's, it's a, a mess for everyone else elsewhere. Um, and yeah, that's the basic plot of it. And, uh, you know, the idea is that, oh, well, you have to balance things out with the real world. You can't just close yourself off. As I said before in uh, a previous discussion, uh, a lot of the themes of the episode are get out, explore the world, you know, see things. Don't just uh, live within the same, um, the same area your whole life. Get out and actually explore things. So, you know, that, that's one of the great themes of the series. Speaking of uh, themes and everything, the next one is Slide by Wire, which is obviously a play of Fly by Wire. In this one, Maggie is left on a brutal world when her double slides with the group. Now, this one I watched from beginning to end, <laughs> honest, and um, it's a pretty good episode because it explores what would happen if the sliders accidentally left one of theirs behind. They're trying to... It turns out that this government uh, never got out of the Cold War with the Russians. So they're trying to um, explore sliding as well. And uh, the sliders try and infiltrate the base to figure out exactly what's going on. But we only catch up at the very end of that part of the story. And the story picks up where Maggie is replaced by her double, who is part of a program where she's cybernetically enhanced. And in this episode, um, she's been closed off for years, and she finally is on this new world she's exploring. But the problem is that she has to hook up to a machine every uh, on a regular basis, uh, basically every day, or she'll die. Because in order to put in the enhancements, they had to take some things out. So she stole an experimental chip that would allow her basically to function indefinitely without needing to be hooked up to a machine, so it would give her some autonomy for the rest of her life. Well, that's the plan anyway. And she doesn't trust the sliders because they think that they're going to take her back and it's going to be a whole thing. But... Um, meanwhile, Maggie is left on the base and having to sort of figure out exactly what she's going to do because she, she doesn't have the implants, so she can't hook up to this. Uh, now, one interesting little tidbit is that an 80s actor makes an appearance in this. Uh, if you're familiar with a lot of 80s movies, then you're going to recognize Meg Foster 
as Colonel Margaret Burke and Bobby Jacoby as Siskin. Because Bobby Jacoby was in, like, just a lot, and I mean a lot, of stuff back in the 80s. He was on Different Strokes. He was in uh, Wizards of the Lost Kingdom. He was in just one of the guys. Um, so it, it really is fascinating just to see how they have all of these different actors making appearances in this show. Uh, and this is an interesting one, mostly for Kari Wurr. This is where she gets to play dual roles, sort of like we had with John Rice davies and sort of like we've had with um, Jerry O'Connell. This one, Kari Wurr gets to play the two versions of herself in the two different uh, scenes. And one, they're on sort of a medieval world where they... Um, where they reject technology because there was a nuclear war, and uh, this kind of this kind of system was previously seen in another uh, episode, but not quite to this extreme. In this setting, they are completely medieval. So uh, anything that is technological, like a computer monitor or something, they just flat out reject, and they uh, shove you into. I don't know, I think it's supposed to be like a nuclear reactor or something. But it's genuinely, like, pretty gruesome. And the costuming is ridiculous. But it's campy at that point, and you have to love it. So you've got that world that didn't recover from the Cold War, and then the other world that uh, has Meg Foster and everyone in it, where they didn't recover from the Cold War. And in this one... Uh, it, it, she is eventually discovered after she reconnects with uh, the, this world's version of her late husband, where they just drifted apart, and uh, originally he died on a ski trip with her. And that was one of the reasons why uh, she's been in mourning and has been hesitant to get into a new relationship. Perfectly reasonable. But the other half of it is that she wants to get back with him. So this is a very heart-wrenching storyline for her because she could have back what she lost. Anyway, so it's it's interesting. That the, the enhancement program is basically there so that um, pilots can fly a drone purely by remote. Now, of course, we have drones in the real world, and we don't have it that way. And the whole idea is that they'll be able to react faster. But instead, we just made our drones small and stealthy. Um, you know, in some cases, not much bigger than a very large bird. We made their radar profile immensely small so that, you know, they don't even show up as like a missile or something. And we cover them in, in radar absorbing material. And it, it drones are scary. <laughs> But uh, this world's drones are more like an anime drone. It's it's not as great as um, as what we see in real life. But Slide by Wire is definitely one of the more interesting episodes if you're really into Kari Wurr as an actress. And it's a bit of a challenge to to kind of get through otherwise. If you're not into Maggie as a character, you're going to have a hard time with this one. 
Okay, so the next episode, episode 17, is Data World. And no, it doesn't mean that they have Brent Spiner as an android. No, instead, uh, basically, the world has been... Um, is, is just occupied with, like, people wandering around mindlessly while society falls apart. Because one by one, they've all had their minds uploaded into... A virtual version of the Chandler Hotel, which is owned by uh, by this guy, and he's like, I control this world, and I don't have a body, so you know, if you don't like it, tough luck. Anyway, so Archibald Chandler is uh, the hotel manager, and uh, he's. He's basically a creep. He's Agent Smith. It's, you know, he controls everything with his data pad, and he likes to engage with Quinn, but he's also trying to pry open Quinn's mind. Uh, so Roy Dotrice plays uh, Chandler, and you might remember him from Babylon 5, or if uh, you've ever seen Cheech and Chong's The Corsican Brothers. He's... Uh, He's pretty well known and, and has been in a lot of things. Um, he's a pretty well known, you know, uh, character actor for a lot of things. And likewise, you see a lot of other, uh, a lot of other actors in here, like Phil Fondacaro, who is a little person, and he is really fantastic in this. Uh, he has yet another connection to a Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen movie. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly. I think he was in uh, To Grandmother's House We Go. Uh, or no, it was uh, Double Double Toil and Trouble. That's it. Um, yeah, it, it's genuinely like uh, weird. But in the 90s, you had a lot of these character actors who did these kinds of gigs. And, you know, it it is what it is. <laughs> you know, he's in it. He plays a rebel. And it's refreshing that they would actually have an, a character played by a little person where his height is never, you know, made fun of. It's, it's never a factor. You know, it, you, you have uh, these actors who have dwarfism or are otherwise just little people, and they're just there. And it's kind of beautiful. You wouldn't think that, of all things, sliders would be so progressive, but they are. And I think that's kind of brilliant. Uh, also in here is Patrick Thomas O'Brien, who is just, like, in everything. He He's, like, uh, I'm looking at his IMDb page, and it says that he was in UHF, but I don't remember him from UHF. Um, he's been, there's a photo on here from Night Court, he obviously was just a character actor doing a bit part for the series for, like, one of the cases. I don't know. I don't remember. it. I, I do remember uh, Brent Spiner being on Night Court. And it, it can be really amazing when you just start like, hey, it's that guy. So, yeah, that that's another way in which we can directly connect Sliders to another series. Because you have Patrick O'Brien being on Night Court. And uh, Brent Spiner was on Night Court, and Brent Spiner was on Next Generation. Now, if we can connect it can, to Kevin Bacon, we'll really be cooking. Uh, so anyway, Data World is basically the Matrix. They want to break out. 
uh, but the world is completely controlled. It's completely artificial, and the uh, the guy running it is appropriately enough a sadist. Uh, which, if you've seen uh, the Gorsican brothers, yeah, uh, Roy Dotrice's character in that is uh, is a sadist. So it's uh, it's kind of brilliant um, that he just can't get away from that, <laughs> but. It's true. Um, anyway, uh, so he sets up all kinds of weird arbitrary rules, like no singing in public. And then they, uh, he, he still punishes you if you sing in the privacy of your hotel room. Now, it, they actually have a scene where Rembrandt is singing in the privacy of their hotel room, but he gets punished for it the same as he did before when he was singing at the bar. Yeah, there's a serious problem with that. Anyway, uh, so it's a pretty good episode in terms of its concept. It's a little bit shaky on the science. It treats uh, science as magic, once again, and computers as big magic boxes. But it's still a lot of fun. So next is the episode Way Out West. And as soon as I heard that title, I had a really hard time not singing the song by Midnight Oil. Um beds are burning uh you know just way out west yeah anyway uh but the episode itself is fine it has a lot of um various character actors in it as you would expect uh but i genuinely just had fun with it because they go ahead and they play up just how cliche it is with all of the uh western expressions like this is supposed to take place in a slightly delayed development earth where everything is still in the old west style uh even out in california so i found it interesting um and we once again see reiner schöne that is his actual name as kolitar uh who is the chromag from the slide gate episode and that was where he apparently slid from so he was returned to that place where he took up um becoming uh, a a highwayman and got together a gang and uh started you know pillaging the area and and using his powers on everything and because we kind of see that he has shape-shifting powers um he tries to frame quinn for cold-blooded murder over a card game and that's basically where the intrigue of the episode is it's not a bad episode it genuinely is a fun adventure and it's great that they actually poke fun at some of the western phrases and cliches that uh, can be problematic for an episode that takes place in the old west and they've won they, they've really uh, for for the most part, Slider's given all of its nature as moving around to different places and using various uh, locations. They've really held off on going to too many Old West worlds, which is great. Uh, so this one is genuinely enjoyable. It's very campy. It's not a so bad it's good. It's genuinely like... Like, they just go ahead and say, what the heck, we're going to make a, an episode that takes place in an old Western style, and we're just going to have fun with it. So just sit back and enjoy, folks. 
that's how the episode feels, and that's really how it plays out. Okay, episode 19 is called My Brother's Keeper. Have you seen Clonus? Parts the Clonus horror? Uh, or have you seen anything where there's been uh, the subject of cloning and growing a whole clone for spare parts and that kind of thing? Well, that's what we're talking about here. Um, they come to a world where because Quinn has a double, they assume that the double is a clone that's uh, grown specifically for replacing organs. So uh, this world's Quinn has, you know, loses his eyes in uh, a horrible situation, a horrible accident involving a laser that our Quinn that we know and love uh, tries to warn him against. He's like pounding on the glass. Don't do it. You'll blow up the place and, and die and everything. Uh, so it's an interesting episode when you get uh, when when you're debating about cloning. The problem is that a lot of people uh, in the stem cell industry and in the uh, synthetic organs, you know, research area will tell you that it's actually more wasteful to grow an entire human. And, like, it's much, much simpler just to use stem cells to grow a, 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 a replacement organ. Like a heart, eyes, um, skin grafts, for burn victims especially, um, new kidneys, new livers. There's a lot of organs that you could grow that then wouldn't nutrients and resources wouldn't have to be um, wasted on things like bone but as it is the clones are just kept somewhere they aren't educated with anything more than a rudimentary understanding of anything so yeah it's basically parts the clonus horror if you've seen the mst3k episode or if you've watched the actual movie you'll know what it's all about and basically the clones rebel there are there are clones that have escaped and they reject what their role is in this society that dictates they need to be killed by the end of the episode uh they uh wind up basically convincing society that you know they don't have to go ahead and kill the clones and everything apparently they used to grow the clones without heads somehow not entirely sure how that would work. Like, if you're going to do that, why not just clone replacement parts? Honestly, just why not do that? Because um, back in, like, the late 90s, I want to say it was, they, they were first experimenting with stem cells. And the beauty of stem cells is you can, like, harvest them from um, afterbirth, placental tissue. Uh, you can harvest them from... Uh, your liver, you can harvest them from bone marrow. There's, there's lots of sources of stem cells. Uh, so you don't have to just grow an entire human. What they did in order to test it out was they actually grew um, a little girl a new ear that had been lost in some way, shape, or form. They used a micro lattice structure that was able to be dissolved as they fed these cells to grow and multiply so that they could then attach this new ear in a form of um, eh, 
basic cosmetic surgery, if you will, but really, really basic. Basically just, you know, grafting it on, but it had cartilage, it had skin, it had blood vessels. So this girl has an ear as a result. And this is something that actually happened, apparently, because um, I saw a news story on it, and I think it was on 2020. Uh, but it's a fascinating story, and uh, I'm, I'm talking about this particular one. Uh, my brother's keeper by the end because the that world's quinn mallory is so frustrated by um being discounted just because he's suddenly blind now it's it's more problematic for him that people are treating him that way you know you can't just discount someone because they have a disability that person can still contribute that person still has their mind they might have to learn to adapt but they're not useless just because they might lose their sight or something you know uh okay so next episode episode 20 that's right we're at 420 smoke them if you got them uh is called the chasm and it's another weird one where you have to kind of figure out exactly what's going on with the story first so they arrive and a grandfather and his daughter are standing above this glowing green hole inside of a cave and the grandfather's like okay sweetheart amy i'm going to jump in and then it's part of the ritual you understand this so everything in this world is pristine and beautiful and wonderful, but um, it doesn't make sense that everyone is so happy. After they manage to rescue the little girl and get her out of there, some electricity flies around after the grandfather jumps into this green hole. And like just saying it like that it sounds incredibly stupid and it kind of is but uh basically quinn gets hit by the electricity and ends up becoming happy and while everyone like while maggie is miserable so the closer they stand together the more miserable she is and the more happy he is so it ends up becoming almost a parasitic relationship uh, if you follow. Now, I'm going to spoil the mystery reveal for you because it turns out that the entire town called uh, Middleton, I think it is, is actually a resort. And people would come there and they would temporarily unload their burdens onto a person and then when they left, their burdens would come back. So wealthy people would come there, spend spend a lot of money. You could have all the popcorn and uh, and uh, cotton candy that you want. You could have um, soda. There were balloons and everything. Um, so it's just a beautiful little uh, middle America town. And uh, it turns out that the woman who runs the malt shop, the soda fountain, is actually the descendant of the person who founded this park. And part of the um, part of the part of the system in in this is that 
you have to be willing to take the plunge and take on the burden of someone else while um, while you're there, basically. And it's the, it's the best way out. But then uh, a lot of the rich people just stopped leaving and stayed there, you know, infinitely. And with all of that misery just piling up and everything, it became like a boiler about to explode. And so it became harder and harder to maintain the system without just feeding it fresh bodies on a regular basis. So eventually they figure this out. Maggie is, is selected. That's why she's getting sad. She's taking on all the sadness of the entire town. And as she's being put into cryo suspension before it can kind of finalize, uh, she uses a gun to just blow up the whole uh, machine and free everyone who's in cryogenic suspension. And, you know, at first, uh, the woman running the malt shop is like, well, what are we going to do? And it's like, uh, live. You know, don't put your, put your burdens on someone else. Live with your sorrows. Live with whatever is wrong with your life. Because as it is, this is one of the best metaphors for depression that I've ever heard. It's, it's one of the best metaphors for a toxic relationship that I've ever heard. Where people are just, you know, in the person's mind saying all of these awful, vindictive things. You know, um, Rembrandt is hearing it from Quinn because Quinn is the one who's taking on all of, you know, unloading all of this guilt. And as a result, he's feeling better, but then Rembrandt feels terrible. And then after Rembrandt takes the plunge into the chasm, it's passed along to Maggie, and that's that's where we get a lot of this. So the chasm's actually a really good explanation of toxic relationships and the way that an abusive person will sometimes feed on another person's misery just by fueling a lot of their guilt or anxiety. You follow? I think you follow. Episode 21 is Roads Taken, and in it, Quinn and Maggie age prematurely on a war-torn world. Now, this one is actually a surprisingly beautiful episode because what it is, is Quinn and Maggie aren't just aging prematurely. The reason why they're aging prematurely is because they are consciously, they're, they're actually torn between th that world that they're in and a... Um, a, a micro-bubble universe that's basically kind of a fusion of their two worlds in existence. And, it, and what it is, is that over the course of this, you actually see them like go on their first date, become a couple, uh, and basically live a life together. And what it does is it actually helps get a lot of the will-they-won't-they they out of their systems, because now they have. They've lived that life. They got married, had a kid, had very long, prosperous careers, uh, explored all kinds of science. And meanwhile, in, in our world, in, in the regular world that uh, Colin and Rembrandt are in, they're dying. So their son, who's an adult, travels outside that world sort of as a ghost at first and then finally as a full-on physical being he takes them 
out of that universe into the bubble universe where they then meet their elder selves and the elder quinn mallory is played by commandant lazard of police academy that's right george gaines himself who a lot of us who are older would know from punky brewster uh as well as from the police academy films and of course one of my favorite roles of his is a little bit part in the Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie in which he plays a professor. He's very, he's right there at the beginning and then you never see him again. It would be great if they had him uh, come back at the end, but I don't think they do. But as it is, George Gaines is amazing in it. Um, he really gets a chance to shine and it's beautiful. Uh, so you should definitely watch Roads Taken just for uh, the heck of it because it is a genuinely fun episode once you get over the mystery part. It's a little bit soft in terms of its narrative, but not horrible. Like, it's not so soft that you can't stand it. Okay, episode 22, Revelations. Quinn and Colin reunite with their parents on a place they believe is their homeworld. Now, right away, because they go ahead and say they believe it's their homeworld, you know it's not their homeworld. But we don't get that right away. These people, uh, the group, the sliders, are basically trapped on a world for 26 days. Now, this is not the first time that they've been stuck there uh, on a world for, you know, so many days or weeks. So it's not an unheard of thing. But they have to figure out, like, okay, they got to find jobs. They got to support themselves because they can't just stay there for a week. They can't just stay in the Chandler Hotel and then uh, skip out on the check which I suspect they probably do a few times. Uh, but it does work. Um, they, they, the, the Mallory brothers take up work at a, um, at a garage working on cars and things like that. And Maggie gets to waitressing and hates it. So, yeah, it's, it's, um, interesting enough seeing what would happen if they actually did settle down somewhere for a time and you would think that they would actually enjoy living a normal life for a while and everything i don't know but uh eventually they meet uh they meet a man who uh says oh yeah i'm actually from your home world uh and he's played by jerry harden who you'll recognize from everywhere he's he's a very common character actor um and on you know so beyond that you've got a bunch of other character actors and it turns out that the world that they came from was actually just as bad to the chromags of their world as the chromags are to humans so it's not actually their world. It's a, it's another parallel world close to the one that they came from, but which is why they worry about the slide gate because that comes back uh, into question. And it sort of works as a story. It leaves them kind of still back in the same place as they were at the start or by episode six of season four. Um, oh, brother, where art thou? but nowhere near as um, as 
much sort of in the middle of, of everything as, as bad as in a bad uh, way as everything. Now we get to one of the most disappointing parts about Sliders, Season 5. I should point out that Revelations is actually another episode that has a biblical name just for the sake of uh, pointing it out because Season 4 ends up having a lot of biblical names for each episode. But as for Season 5, oh my god. Season 5 is so bad. Season 5 is bad from the start. We meet the sliders sliding through a tunnel, and right in the middle of it, we see the vague figures of the Mallory brothers, and they just disappear through the sides of the uh, tunnel that they slide through. I'm not kidding. Um, so at this point, the O'Connell brothers were out. Um, I, I think that Jerry O'Connell just, uh, wanted to be a producer on the show. He didn't want to actually act in it anymore. And he, at this point he had been in it for four seasons. Uh, I don't think his brother was ever seriously into it. Um, I, I think his brother actually quit acting after that. Like, you occasionally saw him as, like, a jock or something in a particular film or other. And it's like, it's okay. But for this final season, which was only on sci-fi, uh, they introduced a lot of interesting uh, little scripts that were kept kind of on the back burner and aren't very good. So this is the table scrap Um season where a lot of the writers were jumping ship to go move on to other projects and it shows episode one is called the unstuck man and if that title doesn't quite make sense yeah it doesn't make sense but basically um the unstuck man is kind of a double meaning because what they do is they have that world's quinn mallory but he's played by a totally new actor who looks not really anything like um, like either of the O'Connell brothers. Robert Floyd was chosen basically to replace them, but because he's not the genius that the other Mallory boys were, he's, he's basically just a smiley, you know, tall white guy with a chin and a full head of hair, and that's about it. So at this point, the show completely changed uh, its intro from having uh, Jerry O'Connell narrate the opening to having Clevant Derricks narrate the opening with the exact same dialogue and everything um, because he was the only remaining cast member from the initial pilot from the first season. And thinking about that, you would not expect that. Like, you might expect the actor to be able to stick around if he didn't have a lot of other stuff. But, like, you would not expect that having watched the original, you know, pilot or the first season at all. You would not expect for that character to make it. You would think that he would have been one of the first ones that got dumped as a character, like, back in season two or three, but 
he was popular enough with the fans. The other actors were leaving, so rather than let the series die, they just kept him on board and brought on new actors and kept Kari Wur on. So it kind of works, I guess. Okay, anyway. So the villain for this episode and the next episode is Peter Jurassic from Babylon 5, Lando Malari himself. And in this episode, the Sliders land on a new world and they encounter the new Quinn Mallory as well as uh, Diana Davis, who's a doctor. She's Dr. Diana Davis. Anyway, and she's going to be the new science nerd uh, who spews out the techno jargon for the episodes for the entire season from here on out. And she does fine. You know, they actually bothered to have a second person of color as a recurring protagonist. Shock, I know. Um, but they actually bothered to have her, and she did fine. There's nothing particularly notable about her character other than just sort of the messed up stuff that happens with Peter Jurassic's character. Like, apparently she was just a struggling student, and he kind of tapped her in the way that Professor Arturo tapped Quinn Mallory in uh, our original premise of the show. But in this case, the unstuck man isn't just referring to our new Quinn Mallory, but it's also referring to Peter Jurassic's character. And Dr. Oberon Geiger, where do they get these names? Dr. Oberon Geiger winds up uh, becoming the recurring villain, uh, at least for these two episodes. And he is so mustache twirling. Like, he's kept in a protective force field that keeps him safe uh, from being torn apart by uh, this other dimension because he hasn't quite perfected sliding. So he's kind of in between dimensions. Uh, and... It's basically establishing everything you need to know for the new season. That's all it is. It's basically a reboot pilot, if you will. Um, the next episode, Applied Physics, is basically part two of that story arc. And it involves Diana meeting her double on the next Earth that they slide to. Because they don't really have a choice. They're given, like, 30 seconds to decide, and Quinn can't be saved without her help but um they have to get the other mallories out of him it's like wow okay maybe he should try a low mallory diet but all right so anyway it's an okay episode and it basically shows that um that that oberon geiger can like alter what happens in that dimension. And so this is a, a new way that the that the villains can work. Uh, uh, basically, it, we're no longer dealing with just an alternate reality, but this particular person can completely alter what reality works like for you as you're in it. And, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. So he's uh, 
he's uh, essentially working kind of on the god level, and that's kind of his goal because he is a a real mustache twirler of a villain. And as part of it, Diana accidentally sets him free from his prison. Yeah. So now she has an arc and something that she needs to resolve. The next episode, Strangers and Comrades, features Jerry Doyle, also from Babylon 5. Like, seriously. Like, he made his way over from Warner Brothers and Babylonian Productions to, you know, you've got two actors who came on board for this. I don't know if maybe they had the same agent or if, or, or what exactly, but Sliders loved having one-off cameos by actors who were in other things. If you haven't noticed by all of the cameos I've noted. So Strangers and Comrades has them on a planet that is between dimensions. And there is uh, a war going on between humans and Cro-Mags on this planet. And the humans are losing. That's basically the premise of the episode. One of the better aspects to this story is that, for one thing, Jerry Doyle looks really great in World War II gear. Like, they put all of them in, like, basically mock-up Allied Forces uniforms. But... Uh, they're basically, like, using a really cheap set because they can just, like, stack sandbags for trenches and use some of the old uh, World War One and Two props uh, from the studio backlot. I wouldn't be surprised if it was just a standing set that they had for, like, old war movies from back in the day. But um, they introduced very early on this mystery box of, oh, there's a bunker and we don't know what's in it. Uh, we think it might be this horrible weapon, and sure enough, it is this horrible weapon that doesn't just kill Cro-Mags, but it makes the planet completely uninhabitable. Uh, so, long story short, they end up getting into the bunker, and they find not only this horrible weapon, but a computer that controls a stasis field that is around the planetoid that they're on, which is, which is called Purgatory, appropriately enough. And uh, basically, the as soon as um, as soon as uh, Deanna turns off the stasis field, she's also able to relocate the vortex um, or something. I'm not exactly sure because it's all science techno babble at that point. But basically, you know, the computer will let them fix it, and then they can set off the bomb because the Chromags. Um, you know, they're in in the field of battle. They're they're the sliders are able to get the Chromags to agree to a truce, um, and figure out what they want. And it's like we want food. Um, okay, well we don't have any. You have a bunker, and that bunker could be full of food. And they're like, uh, well we can go look. We can't. We don't have access to it. Anyway, so the Chromags uh, turn around and. Um, resume their attack after killing all of the remaining soldiers and the sliders are left in the bunker and they make their escape. And it's not an especially great ending with that, but the rest of the episode is genuinely pretty good overall. Like, if you want, like, another departure from their normal setting, this is a really good one where they aren't just in the typical setting that uh, you find them in where it's like, oh, some generic city or 
the studio backlot city set um, as you get in a lot of later seasons just because it's cheaper to film there then you don't have to get filming rights location rights you don't have to close off a city street or anything which was one of the things that really upped the cost of the first few seasons of sliders and it was one of the reasons why by season uh, three they decided that they would um, just make it within a 400 mile radius of San Francisco so basically most of California at that point but as it is you can sort of see why it, it was tag end stories that didn't really fit anywhere else and they were just really trying to trying to finish out the series so that it could go to syndication uh, so the next episode from there is the great work and Maggie is injured so they go to a monastery and the monastery is holding um, basically a repository for all the knowledge in the world okay as you do and there are raiders who want it yeah so it it's not a very imaginative episode it's like oh we have another thing that's like the greatest thing in the world and it's in a monastery for some reason and someone from the outside wants it and they have to help them so that's the story fascinating isn't it yeah uh, i it's one of those ones where I think you can probably skip it and you won't miss much. The next three episodes are total table scrap scripts. Um, New Gods for Old has Mallory shot with a laser beam uh, paralyzing him and he has to get help from spiritual healers. Yeah. If, if you know that, you know what the episode's going to be about. It's not going to be that interesting. Uh, please press one episode six of season five uh, is centered around Maggie being kidnapped by a corporate conglomerate as she becomes trapped in a credit system that refuses to let her leave. So it's another situation in which we take something from our world and spin it out into absurdity. You know, the previous ep episode we had spiritual healers spun out into absurdity. Now we have credit companies spun out into absurdity the next episode a current affair a tabloid newspaper spreads a rumor that the president is having an affair with maggie as a plot to cover up a germ warfare plot they use plot twice in the description on wikipedia uh is also concerning switzerland so yeah it's another thing where things are spun out into absurdity absurdity the tabloid uh basically is publishing something that you know is just for intrigue and trying to make um and and really just complicates things but doesn't really make it anything where the sliders should really give a crap um and they could easily just move on from that world but instead they get bogged down in the middle of it a lot of the plots from season five are why are we bogged down in this why wouldn't we just go camp out somewhere and leave this whole thing alone i don't know uh episode eight the java jive 
The sliders land on a world where caffeine is outlawed. Rembrandt falls for a club singer who wants out of a speakeasy life and holds a secret. Rembrandt's double is a killer for the mob. So we're dealing with a couple of other similar plot threads from um, episodes like Great Fellas and uh, so on, where we have a mob influence on everything. And yeah, it's, it's just not that exciting an episode. Um, it's like, oh, you've got a speakeasy with coffee. I mean, did the writers realize that most of... Okay, there's an actual theory regarding beverages and humanity uh, that was put out about, oh, about 15 years ago now, in which uh, a British historian theorized that um, comestibles, potables, um, actually influenced society a great deal. So, for example, the British Empire was run on tea. The tea helped uh, people stay awake through the afternoon, helped them think more clearly throughout the day, helped them stay up late at night to work, and come up with all kinds of ideas. Coffee um, apparently was what fueled the American and French revolutions. Because a lot of the philosophes at the time, a lot of these well-to-do people, landed gentry, uh, who you know, had enough money to spend on coffee and didn't have to go to work the whole day, they were able to exchange ideas about the freedom of man and, and the equality of man at the coffee houses, and they were able to read the newspaper about the goings-on of the day and feel as enlightened as a king, if not more. So there is theory that um, caffeine from tea and coffee actually influenced a lot of things. Tea fueled the British Empire. Coffee fueled uh, the American and French revolutions. I don't exactly know how that plays into the Russian Revolution, among other things, but or the um, Indian uprising that eventually threw out the British, but there you go. The Return of Maggie Beckett is another one where this seems like it was written sort of earlier in the series and just kind of rewritten a little bit for the purposes of our uh, final season. In this one, Maggie is mistaken for her double, who is an astronaut, and she gets kidnapped by conspirators, conspirators uh, and the situation is further complicated when Maggie meets the double of her father, who is a general. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, it's a focus on Maggie episode, so, you know, Kari Wurr at that point was in the series for quite a while. She was a bit of an up-and-coming star. She had a um, she had a, a little VH1 made-for-TV movie that uh, she was in. Uh, if I recall, I think it was called Sweetwater. And the idea was that it was about a band that didn't really exist, but it was um, basically, if you've seen Singing in the Rain, it's that. But, you know her character actually can sing in the movie. Anyway, so Kari Wurr was kind of uh, an up-and-coming star. She was very popular. Uh, around the same time, she appeared in the uh, Command and Conquer series uh, for Red Alert, uh, specifically. And, yeah, was, was basically on the rise, and a lot of people were really happy with her as an actress. So they went ahead, 
and uh, started giving her some bigger roles like this uh, for episodes like this. She had already proven herself on the series quite a bit, and I remember her even being on Celebrity Jeopardy, of all things. I don't remember how she did, but, I mean, there you go. Go Carrie. So, this one, it, it's just like, oh, well, you know, what are the other sliders doing in the meantime? Th that's what I'm wondering. But they're basically there so that Maggie can kind of have her moment to shine. Next episode, episode 10, Easy Slider. On a world where gas-powered vehicles are outlawed due to the pollution that they generate, Mallory becomes friends with a group of motorcycle riders and becomes intimately involved with their leader. So yeah, it's another one where they had the concept and just basically, um, after they wrote the, the treatment, they basically just put that on the, on, in a file cabinet, forgot about it until they uh, were producing this season and dusted it off and filled in the names like Mad Libs. Okay, so this character goes and does this and this character goes and does that. Because uh, it just doesn't feel that organic to the show. Oh, we'll have one about motorcycles. At some point, it actually does feel very much like they were constructing these things with Mad Libs. Okay, so next one. Episode 11, Requiem. Rembrandt receives visions from Wade, who is still in Chromag captivity and somehow sends portals to the world she is on. Well, like a good episode of Sliders, we're going to end this on a cliffhanger because I like to end these really long recordings at the two-hour mark. So we'll talk about the final set of episodes for Sliders in the next recording. In the meantime, thanks for listening and look for part three coming soon.